Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh Lahaz, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm ex- Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll explain what the recent CRTC decision requiring certain streamers to register actually means for free expression. We'll share our bad legal legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some of the legal opinions this week that didn't quite land. We'll ask whether judges should require evidence that vaccines are safe and effective before deciding whether they should be given to kids. But first, let's talk about Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe's plan to use the so-called notwithstanding clause of the Charter. Joanna, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, okay. So this is always kind of fun when this happens, and it's happened with increasing frequency over the last few years, um, but it's kind of like a five-alarm fire in the, in the legal community um, when the notwithstanding clause gets invoked, and it's always kind of a very familiar debate. Um, but look, it's a big deal. So what has happened? So just a few weeks ago, in late September, um, the Saskatchewan Court of King's Bench Justice, Justice McGaw, temporarily blocked, so um, uh, accepted an application for an interim injunction blocking a provincial policy which required parental consent for children up to 16 years of age who wish to change their names or personal pronouns in schools. And Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe quickly reacted to this decision of King's Bench, announcing that he would recall the legislature so that his government could invoke Section 33 to protect this policy from the possibility of a ruling striking it down. Because, of course, this was just an interim decision um, and a full application and hearing on the constitutional merits um, is still pending. And so we have a lot of thoughts about this, a few comments on the sort of underlying dispute and the decision from the Court of King's Bench. Um, But of course, we also have views about the invocation of the notwithstanding clause. Um, So to me, looking at this, and we're going to get into some of the reasons why this particular dispute over the preferred pronouns, children and Scott Moe's decision to preemptively, because this really is a preemptive move, invoke the notwithstanding clause is a fairly classic case where the judiciary and the legislature, which are operating on different, what I would call informational inputs. Of course, the judiciary has a particular expertise in constitutional law, jurisprudence, a particular evidentiary record, and that's how they arrived at their conclusion. Um, And the legislature, which has access to polling and is hearing from constituents and is much more in touch with the sort of democratic pulse. And they are coming to different conclusions about the content of rights. In this case, um, the right to equality, the right to non-discrimination. And so to this King's Bench judge, Justice McGaugh, granted this interlocutory injunction against the policy, the risk of irreparable harm, um, which is the test. And by the way, it's extraordinarily unusual for an uh, for an interlocutory injunction against a government law to be granted. Um, so, yeah, as at the CCF, we have brought a few of these and never successfully. So um, kudos to uh, UR Pride's counsel, uh, Adam Goldenberg, who, full disclosure, is a fairly good friend of mine, uh, although we do disagree on this particular point. 
so, so to this judge, this risk of irreparable harm to trans youth was sufficiently made out um, to grant the injunction. Um, whereas to the Mo government, they're kind of channeling and mirroring what we know is the overwhelming popular preference for parental rights. We know that parents want to be consulted, they want to be brought in. And yes, I suppose they want to consent to their child's decision to socially transition, um, which usually just refers to adopting a new name or a new preferred pronoun. And so at the hearing, there was really looking over the injunction decision, from what I can tell, there was credible evidence both brought on both sides. Uh, on the UR Pride, University of Regina Pride, which brought this action, um, the experts focused on the mental health risks that were associated with a lack of support for uh, a gender diverse child. And the government of Saskatchewan also brought very well-credentialed experts. They brought the evidence of a Berkeley clinical psychologist who works exclusively with trans youth. And her evidence was that parental involvement as well as a professional assessment and medical plan was essential to avoiding long-term harm and long-term gender dysphoria. And so the UR Pride's uh, argument really focused on the long-term risks to what they called the minority of the minority. So this is the very small and vulnerable group of gender diverse youth under age 16 who are fearful of coming out to their parents, um, who don't feel that they are in a safe family environment to come out to their parents and thus would be prejudiced by this policy requiring parental consent. Uh, prior to adopting their preferred pronouns. They say that it would make them either not be able to transition or risk harmful repercussions of having their parents consulted on this decision. So the policy does account for situations where harm may be perceived. Uh, the policy reads that in situ situations where it is reasonably expected that gaining parental consent could result in mental, physical, or emotional harm to the student, they will be directed to the appropriate school professional for support. But of course, to be clear, this support is to figure out a plan to notify the parents and to gain uh, parental consent. It doesn't seem to on its face um, to exempt the student from the possibility. But to me, when I read this, reasonably expected in law is a pretty wide latitude. Um, and I would think that this would be a give enough latitude for teachers and school staff to make judgments about a children's, a child's home environment and hopefully exercise their discretion accordingly. So, you know, I, I don't find this policy to be shocking and egregious on its face, um, but let's talk briefly about the notwithstanding clause and Scott Moe's decision to preemptively invoke it. So notwithstanding clause is part of the original constitutional bargain. It was brought in to allay fears that judges, which with this new robust uh, toolkit of rights, would override the democratic will. And Alberta Premier Peter Lockheed said, we need to have the supremacy of the legislature over the courts. And at that time, he had cited the recent experience of the U.S., where courts had struck down legislation which limited work hours for the use of child workers. Uh, so look, this was part of the deal. Um, and it's, you know, it's a question of whether you think these very divisive social issues should be uh, decided by judges or decided um, by democratically accountable legislatures. Um, it would be my preference personally that Scott Moe did not intervene into this very scorching culture war issue in this way. I would really prefer for parents and teachers 
to exercise care, compassion, and professional judgment amongst themselves. I think they have uh, every ability to do so. I don't like that the state is effectively mandating parental consent for a youth's decision, um, but this is part of the constitutional bargain. Um, and by invoking the notwithstanding clause, Saskatchewan is signaling that it has a different interpretation of how to balance the rights of parents and children. That includes a protected role for parents with specific accommodations where the child may be at risk at home. I would like to hear a little bit more about what exactly this interpretation is. This week, uh, Scott Moe uh, gave a scrum and he made a comment that Section 33, notwithstanding clause, was intended exactly to balance rights in the charter with those not included in the charter, like parental rights. Uh, I think this is a pretty bizarre take. Uh, I, I don't believe that's what but Section 33 was designed to protect. Uh, but given that any political actor, any government invoking the notwithstanding clause bears the political consequences of it, it has to be a renewed every five years. Of course, uh, you know, the people can vote you out if they don't like what you've done, he's going to need to do better. So I know, uh, Josh, you've read the injunction decision and you have thoughts. Uh, what stood out to you about uh, this whole flap? What, what stands out is, well, first of all, uh, and you briefly touched on this, is that a lot of people are claiming that, you know, the use of the notwithstanding clause here is somehow illegitimate because uh, Mo has said he's going to use it after an injunction, which is, you know, temporarily stopping the, the policy from going into effect, even though there hasn't yet been like a full hearing on the merits. And I'm kind of open to that argument, but it is worth pointing out that preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause is nothing new and it's perfectly legal like the supreme court had to look at this question early on in the days of the charter because quebec was using the notwithstanding clause preemptively and so whether we like it or not it is uh legal i'm not i'm also not sure that mo's policy is necessarily the best policy and i won't get too deeply into my thoughts on that but I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable to mandate that parents are involved when there's potentially life-altering decisions made by children at school. But I also do think that, you know, as kids get older, they have more and more autonomy and pr probably have more and more uh, say in these types of decisions. But uh, most importantly, I want to highlight how this decision shows just how fraught this stuff is and the risk here of courts wading into policy making that governments are really much better equipped to to take on. So like basically if you read the decision what you'll see is that there are experts and you mentioned this Joanna, you know experts on one side are saying trans identifying kids are at huge risk if they're not allowed to socially transition and then you have experts like Dr. Anderson on the other side who present research that say, you know, some kids with gender dysphoria are truly trans, but other kids with gender dysphoria might just be gay. And so there's a risk that the kids who are just gay will, you know, mistakenly, mistakenly be put through transitions. And this stuff is so complex and it's politicized and it's really hard to get to the truth of the questions. Um, but this particular judge really kind of uh, played his cards here when he accepted that, you know, kids under 16, could suffer irreparable harm if they don't get to transition without their parents' knowledge. But he also refused to believe that without the policy, six-year-olds could begin transitioning at elementary school 
without their parents' knowledge. And sorry, Your Honor, but but you know these policies do allow six-year-olds to transition without their parents knowing. And in fact, some school boards in my in my own province here in Ontario have been putting out you know statements to teachers to to remind them that yes, kids as young as six can pick their own pronouns and names in kindergarten without their parents knowing. But anyway, the point here is that, you know, the judge seems to think, you know, 15 year olds might be able to make these decisions on their own, but uh, he seems to be more concerned if it were a six year old that were allowed to do it. So what we're, what we're seeing here is basically a, a classic case of, you know, not having perfect social science evidence and someone has to draw a line, you know, is it going to be 16? Is it going to be 12? Like it is in a couple of provinces. Is it going to be kindergarten like it is elsewhere? And when law draw, when line drawing like this has to take place, generally that's best left to governments, not to courts, because, you know, governments have the power to debate these things, to research these things. And like you pointed out, Joanna, to be held accountable by the people in the next election if they get it wrong. So I do think Mo may be justified in using Section 33 here. And to me, the only question is whether he should have waited until after a hearing on the merits or not. Christine, what are your thoughts on this? I want to know why this is always the topic, right? Like, why do we keep having to talk about trans issues and trans kids? It seems like every week this is one of the, the issues that bubbles up in constitutional law. And it's just strange to me that, you know, we have so many, so many issues. And this one really seems to be a kind of spearhead for progressive activists to use our constitution and our charter. Um, on section 33, look, I am a section 33 skeptic, but there have, I, I'm going to get into this in my bad legal takes, but the amount of bad legal takes about section 33 this week, I mean, every single time section 33 is invoked, we hear the same arguments against it, which is, you know, Section 33 is being used to override the Constitution. And it's like, look, Section 33 is a part of the Constitution. And then we always hear these takes. We need to use disallowance to stop Section 33 from, from being used. And and look, that is not that is not going to happen. So I, I think we, I just wish that there was, you know, on, on the issue of an injunction on a on a government law or policy being obtained, we fought so hard for injunctions during the COVID era. But yet, an injunction against the government was a, a an incredibly difficult thing to accomplish. Was of course achieved on this particular issue. Let's turn now to to my uh, my le legal headline of the week because I am tired of that. <laughs> that particular story. Uh, mine is a, a news headline about a judicial review of a family law decision about childhood vaccination, the COVID vaccine in particular. Uh, there were a number of family law decisions about vaccination. You know, mom and mom and dad uh, would be fighting over, you know, separated or divorced mom and dad would be separating over who gets decision-making authority for getting the kids vaccinated or not vaccinated against COVID-19. There were a lot of cases related to that. And this particular case that I'm talking about attracted a lot of attention. The fight was over who had decision-making authority and whether or not dad, who was opposed to vaccination, could bring evidence that the vaccine wasn't going to be safe for the three children 
and mom wanted to have authority to have the kids vaccinated. So the the case attracted a lot of attention because the judge, Justice Bennett of Newmarket, used a lot of, let's call it entertaining language about vaccination. And in particular, he talked about the concept of judicial notice. Now, judicial notice is, is something that is so widely known, so accepted and so uncontroversial that the judge doesn't need evidence to confirm that it is true. And the judge in this case found that he could not take judicial notice that the vaccine was safe and effective. Now this, and, and so he allowed the dad to bring evidence uh, in another hearing that the vaccine was not gonna be safe and effective for the kids. Now his decision to allow that evidence went to judicial review and a panel of judges who heard that judicial review found that Justice Bennett had used what they called inflammatory rhetoric. And they said that chief among his errors was that he failed in his obligation as a lower court judge to follow the Court of Appeals decision that said judges should take judicial notice of regulatory approval of vaccines and that such approval is a strong indicator of safety and effectiveness. But Bennett refused to do that. He wrote at length in his decision about why his case was different from that Court of Appeal case. And this ultimately was overturned and the father was not going to be allowed to bring this evidence. So look, I, I get that constantly allowing for the calling of expert evidence in family court is really going to bog down the courts. These courts are already overwhelmed. It's going to cause huge delays in an already delayed system. And the focus of family law courts should be the best interest. It actually must be the best interest of the children. And cases like this where <laughs> experts are ex expensive, incredibly expensive, and family law cases, even without experts, can really drain the resources of a family. Like families can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in family court fighting over things. So I do understand this perspective, but I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of requiring judicial notice of the safety of, of and efficacy of vaccines. And, and look, there may have been other mistakes in the lower court's decision, but I just really struggle with judicial notice of, of the safety of vaccines especially because we know that vaccines are not safe for all people. I'm literally in British Columbia right now about to head to court in an appeal about that issue. We're going to court in an appeal related to medical exemptions from the government's uh, mandates, the vaccine passports for people who could not be safely vaccinated. So we, I literally know people who could not be safely vaccinated. So the idea of taking judicial notice of the safety of vaccines is preposterous. And I just don't think that the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, especially for children who we know have a higher uh, risk of developing certain types of adverse reactions like heart inflammation, I just don't think that that is as solid a position as, let's say, gravity. And I'm uncomfortable with the idea that judges can say parties cannot even bring evidence to prove this position when it's something, something that's frankly still being debated in society. Any reaction to that, Josh? I've got I've got a lot to say on this that I'll try and keep it relatively short. Um, 
I do think the COVID vaccines were generally safe and effective, uh, but there's no question, like you say, that there's been some injuries too, and the case for giving them to kids was a lot less clear cut than the case for giving them to, you know, senior citizens. So I really I do- I agree. Look, but it's, it's, it's not the same as gravity, which is uh, what you take judicial notice of. Right, right. In law school, when they, what they teach you about judicial notice is, you know, it's things like uh, the sky is blue. Like we genuinely all know that we don't need an expert to prove that. But the whole point of court is to bring evidence to, you know, prove uh, your theory of the case. And so I really think this, the amount that judges are turning to judicial notice on this issue is kind of scary. And I really don't agree with the Court of Appeal decision. I just want to take this opportunity to talk about another vaccine decision. This is a different one, um, but I thought it was uh, really well written and a really interesting decision on basically the same topic. So this was a decision called JN and CG from a judge called Justice Pazarats. And Justice Pazarats starts off his judgment this way. He says, when did it become illegal to ask questions, especially in the courtroom? And when did it become unfashionable for judges to receive answers, especially when children's lives are at stake? How did we lower our guard and let the words unacceptable beliefs get paired together in a democracy on the skills of judge justice? Should judges sit back as the concept of judicial notice gets hijacked from a rule of evidence to a substitute for evidence? Then he goes on. And in this case, uh, it was the, the mother who was concerned about the kids get the child getting the vaccine and the father who wanted the child to get the vaccine. Justice Pazrat says, the mother's evidence focused entirely on the medical and scientific issues. In contrast, the father focused extensively on labeling and discrediting the mother as a person in a dismissive attempt to argue her views aren't worthy of consideration. For example, the father's affidavit Davids included the following. I'm aware that the applicant has political affiliations with the People's Party of Canada. The applicant is entitled to her personal beliefs and ideologies, but I'm very fearful that it is having a direct negative impact on the children, especially when it comes to the vaccine issue. The judge responded to this saying, where do I begin? How is any of this relevant? Have we reached the stage where parental rights are going to be decided on what political party you belong to? Is being seen with Maxime Bernier or anyone for that matter, the kiss of death as far as your court case is concerned? Can you simply utter, utter the words conspiracy theorist and do a mic drop? And then he goes on, he says, you know, why, why should we be so reluctant to take judicial notice that the government is always right? And he goes through a long list of, you know, times where the government clearly wasn't right. So for example, residential schools, Japanese and Chinese internment camps in World War II and so on. And he says, the list of grievous government mistakes and miscalculations is both endless and notorious. Catching and correcting those mistakes is one of the most important functions of an independent judiciary. And throughout history, the people who held government to account have always been regarded as heroes, not subversives. When our government serial, serially pays out billions of dollars to apologize for unthinkable historic violations of human rights and security, how can we possibly presume that today's government experts are infallible? Nobody is infallible and nobody who controls other people's lives, children's lives, should be beyond scrutiny or impervious to review. 
so yeah, I would I would much rather have judges require evidence than take judicial notice of such controversial things as this particular topic, because history has shown over and over again that governments don't always get things right. Joanna, what are your thoughts on this? Okay, so just a few brief comments. Uh, first, that decision um, was actually overturned by the Ontario Court of Appeal, but we won't get into the reasons why. Um, but yeah, I mean, inject that into my veins. This is also one of my favorite decisions of all time. And especially at the end, he gives a rant that's basically like, get the hell out of my courthouse. Like, I'm a grumpy old man, and I don't want to deal with this BS of just like caricature, character attacks against the mother of your children that I'm supposed to take as some type of evidence. Um, and all of this has to come down to the best interests of the child, which of course can be complicated where the family is split and divided. I think in that last case, Josh mentioned that the children did have a preference. Can't remember if it was to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated. Do you remember, Josh? Yeah, the kids did not want to be vaccinated. And that's uh, in an interesting point considering we're talking about whether, you know, 12 to 14 year olds have autonomy. But anyway. Yeah, I, th I just I think that's relevant, if only for like the sort of psychological health of children. Like I know, for example, I had a friend who had uh, has a nine year old and she actually didn't think it was necessary for her kid to get vaccinated because he'd already had COVID. But the kid was in school at the, you know, in 2021 and hearing all these wonderful things about vaccines and he wanted to get vaccinated. And I think that's fair enough. Um, but anyways, that's all that I will say about that. Let's uh, throw to break. Um, and when we come back, we can talk about our favorite government agency, the CRTC, making some uh, saucy moves and ruling on adult content, uh, as well as this form of content. Let's throw, take a break and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. My news headline this week is the CRTC's decision about which streamers, what it calls online undertakings, need to register with the government so that they can be regulated under Bill C-11, which is the new law that brings practically everything that you listen to or watch online under federal government control. There were so many bad takes flying around the internet this week after this decision. For example, a reporter at our esteemed national broadcaster CBC claimed that podcasters' content isn't being regulated by this, when that's the whole freaking point of the bill. And Elon Musk also weighed in and he said this is evidence of Trudeau tr trying to crush free speech in Canada, which is a little bit over the top. Um, I thought I'd take this opportunity to explain what's actually in the bill and also this new CRTC decision. So buckle up. Bottom line, though, is yes, this is a huge free expression issue, even if it's not, you know, censorship, at least not in the sense that most people think of censorship, which is bureaucrats sitting in a room deciding if like a particular TV show can go to air or not. Before I get into this decision, I just want to remind you which of Trudeau's free speech infringing bills C-11 actually is, since there have been so many of these bills. What we're not talking about here is Bill C-18, which is 
the law that ordered companies like Facebook to pay newspapers whenever people share news on their platforms, which resulted in no news being shared on those platforms. We're also not talking about C-36, the so-called online harms bill, which hasn't passed and hopefully never does because it would have allowed judges to jail people proactively if they thought they might engage in discriminatory speech and created fines for people saying basically politically incorrect things online. What we're talking about is C-11, so the online streaming bill that amended the Broadcast Act and being very generous to the government, it has two apparent aims. One goal appears to be forcing companies like Netflix, Disney, Spotify to fund shows that are not commercially viable because, you know, people don't watch them or listen to them in order to, you know, create jobs or protect jobs uh, for the people who make shows like Kim's, Kim's Convenience or APTN News. It's basically like an extension of the CanCon regime that existed on radio and TV um, for many years. The second goal is essentially to ensure that certain groups of Canadians who the government sees as part of their vote voter base, so Black Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, and Francophone Canadians, get funding to create shows uh, or have the shows that they do create promoted at the expense of other Canadians who, frankly, are less likely to be Liberal or NDP voters. So while people like the C CBC reporter I mentioned claim this isn't like a free speech issue, it really does impact free expression because the government is still deciding what content must be prioritized and what content isn't. It really does put the CRTC in control of what you watch and listen to online. So let's get into this decision. First, the order says that online undertakings, so the streaming platforms, must register no later than November 28th so that the CRTC can begin its consultations on its regulatory plan, which will first focus on whether there's enough Indigenous content, and it'll later get into, you know, whether there's enough Black or Francophone content, for example. What people have latched onto as evidence that podcasts and YouTube videos aren't regulated by C11 is the part of the decision that exempts online undertakings with revenues of less than $10 million from registration. And by the way, it's interesting, Joanna, I, I think you mentioned this before break. It's interesting what's not exempt here. So Pornhub's parent company was denied an exemption. And so it's possible, however unlikely, that the CRTC will be monitoring Pornhub to ensure that there's sufficient Indigenous, Black, or Francophone content. But anyway, uh, this $10 billion requirement, it's a bit of a red herring because um, it doesn't mean podcasts like this or YouTube videos uplo uploaded by regular users aren't affected. They are. And if you don't believe me, let me quote from the decision. So, quote, the commission finds that podcasts constitute programs under the Broadcasting Act. Quote, the commission finds that where the undertaking is hosting or distributing the podcasts, it is engaged in the transmission of programs, i.e. podcasts. Quote, the commission therefore concludes that online undertakings that host and distribute podcasts are carrying on online undertakings. And finally, individuals that host podcasts on their own websites or make them available on a subscription service platform other than a social media service are not explicitly excluded. So how are these podcasters and YouTubers affected, even if they don't need to register? We don't know exactly how, but it sounds like it'll be something like this. Basically, Spotify will be required to devote like a certain percentage, let's say 5% of the 
of all podcast spending in Canada to Indigenous programming, maybe another 5% to Black programming, and let's say 30% to Francophone programming. In this scenario, Spotify would be forced to spend 40% of its total spend in Canada on these preferred podcasters. Meanwhile, if it's already spending, say, like $6 million a year to show Joe Rogan in Canada, it would have to spend $4 million on the Black, Indigenous, and Francophone content before it could be legally allowed to even spend like a single cent on shows made by anyone else. So if if, Spot, if Spotify had like a $10 million budget, then it would be only the government's preferred groups getting any money, plus Joe Rogan, maybe. So, and this is, of course, assuming that Spotify doesn't just like pull out of Canada like Facebook has done with news. And this is a free expression issue in at least a few ways. First of all, Spotify is a publisher, so um, there's compelled speech involved because it's being required to mouth the government's message. And compelled speech is the most egregious type of free expression infringement. Another way that this impacts expression is that the government is in a way silencing the voices of every like YouTuber or podcaster who doesn't get this government mandated special treatment. And finally, it's impacting free expression of podcast listeners because expression is a two way street that protects not just speakers, but also listeners. And if listeners can't access certain podcasts anymore because of this government regulation, you can make the argument that their speech is being infringed. Now, I'm not saying that a court would necessarily find that the act or this new CRTC decision is unconstitutional. Courts in Canada can be pretty disappointing on free expression issues. I'm just saying that it's undeniable that there are some major implications for free expression from C11 and anyone who disagrees with me can come fight me. <laughs> Christine, uh, what do you think about this? I know there was a lot of info, but I'm really passionate yeah. about this. I'll just give some really quick comments first. Thank you everyone listening to for listening to our subversive and unregistered podcast. Ooh. And I, I wonder if like we actually will at some point be required to register. I mean, I would like to manifest that we will one day be a $10 million revenue podcast, but uh, I'm not holding my breath for that. And then my second comment and quick reaction is I like at the beginning, Josh, how you had to explain exactly which censorious law you were referring to because the Trudeau government has passed so many. And it's like, no, this one's different from the C-18 one. And it's different from what C-11 does to digital streaming on YouTube and the upvoting of, of content. And uh, I mean, this is just such an unfriendly government towards freedom of expression and digital expression in particular. It's like they don't understand the internet and they just want to control it so that the the people that they they want to be heard get heard first. And that is a, a type of censorship, you know, the notion that some content is prioritized automatically means other content is deprioritized. Like you don't go to page 10 of YouTube. You don't even go to page two of Google. So upvoting one thing means downvoting another thing. And it's not, none of this is going to help content like ours, which of course is extremely Canadian. We're three Canadians talking about Canadian law in Canada. Uh, but, 
you know, it's, it's not designed to help us. It's designed to help the preferred voices of this government. Joanna, anything to add to that? Uh, so just a quick comment, actually, while Josh was discussing this, uh, I got uh, an email from Jen Gerson, I mean, on her email list, not like a personal email from Jen Gerson. Um, and it is a barn burner. She's been very consistently commenting on this from its inception. Um, and her take, uh, which I'll just channel is don't comply. <laughs> like, we're just, we're not playing along with this. Like, this is not really a drill. So giving this much power to a regulator, to the CRTC, is not going to work out well for anyone. And here's what she says. The gross absurdity of this country's political theater offers only one recourse. Don't comply. If you're a consumer of Canadian media, educate yourself on VPNs. For content creators, don't register with the CRTC. Civil disobedience is not only appropriate in this case, it's necessary. Um, and yes, we certainly will not be registering. Um, and uh, it would be scary indeed if Spotify decided to pull out of Canada. Uh, hopefully we're not there. Um, okay, let's move on to Christine and her freedom update, which I know she has some several very exciting ones. Yeah, so this is sort of a, a three part freedom update. Don't worry, all three parts are short. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm in Vancouver for the appeal in a case challenging British Columbia's vaccine mandates uh, and the vaccine passports, if you remember those. And I've talked about this case a number of different times. I think I talked about it in last week's podcast, but briefly, it's a challenge brought by two women and a teenager who couldn't get vaccinated because they were either very medically complex or they had had adverse reactions to the first dose of a COVID vaccine. And I will be heading to court right after we wrap up recording this, and I will be live tweeting everything that happens in court. I'll also be doing live updates on our YouTube channel every night after court as well. This uh, hearing takes place April, or sorry, October 4th, 5th, and 6th, so it's scheduled to take place for over three days. So if you want to watch my live updates, live court summaries. Those are always really popular. Just head to YouTube and search the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Basically, the today, the government is going to be making the case that this appeal should not be heard, that the case is moot. They don't want this to proceed at all, which is really frustrating because the government has successfully evaded review in a number of cases that dealt with rights violating laws on these stupid procedural grounds. And I think we really need some good precedent in these cases. It is not out of the realm of possibility that these vaccine passports come back in some form this fall as respiratory viruses rise, or that an equivalent type of policy could be passed again in another crisis. So we really need some precedent. I will give an update today about how the mootness arguments go. So subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Canadian Constitution Foundation on YouTube, and you can watch those updates. My second update is another really big one. This morning, we were granted leave to intervene in a case in Quebec challenging the government's policy that prohibits any form of visible prayer by students in schools. So this isn't like, you know, students being required to pray. It's just students might choose to pray at any time of day and they want may want to do it at school and they're not asking for any special accommodation they're just asking not to be you know disciplined for engaging in prayer so 
this is a really important religious freedom case. We are going to be intervening in the Quebec court. In our, this is going to be our very first intervention in Quebec. So I'm very thrilled about that. And we have an exceptional criminal lawyer who's going to be representing us in this case. I'm really excited that we've been granted this leave in an incredibly important religious freedom case. I mean, essentially what the law in Quebec means is that students who want to pray are going to be kicked off of school grounds. And it has a really disproportionate impact on Muslim students in particular who pray five times a day and some of those times fall within the school day. And I think it's egregious that the government would force them out into the, the rain and snow and, and walk down the road and leave school property when they could be accommodated by quite literally doing nothing, like allowing just ignoring the students who might, you know, go to a corner of a hallway to pray or use an empty, otherwise empty classroom to, to pray. Now, my third update is that I am now finalizing a book that is the second book that we have coming out this year. Uh, this is actually going to be a free book that you can download online when it's released. And it is about healthcare choice in Canada. And I want to, it's not ready yet, but I want to give you a bit of a teaser it is a compilation uh, of essays about healthcare choice in Canada and how healthcare is failing. And it proposes some new and innovative ways that can address the problem. And there are going to be essays from Joanna and I at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, from people from the McDonald Laurier Institute, from the Fraser Institute, the Frontier Institute, the Montreal Economic Institute, a charity called Second Street and from the former head of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Brian Day. And Joanna and I at the CCF, we have worked for years on this case called Canby, where we were arguing that if the government is going to create a monopoly on healthcare, that they can't exclude patients from going outside of that monopoly system when the healthcare system has failed them. They can't leave patients languishing on wait lists, having their health deteriorate, because it's a violation of their Section 7 Charter Protected Right to Security of Person and, and life. Um, you know, we've talked about this case on the podcast a few times before, but if you want to learn more about the book, you can sign up for our email freedom updates at the ccf.ca slash freedom updates. And we will let you know as soon as the book is available and you can download it for free. And of course, that's a separate book from uh, the book that Joanna and I have coming out at the end of this month, Pandemic Panic, which you can order on Amazon. It's actually rated number one in three categories on Amazon right now as a as a bestseller. So uh, check it, check that out on Amazon. Please support us by by ordering our book. Okay, let's head to bad legal takes now. That was my update. Josh, what's your bad legal take this week? My bad legal take this week goes to the very woke folks at Environment and Climate Change Canada, formerly known as Environment Canada, who have decided that it's discriminatory to explain to Canadians that poor air quality is a result of Diwali fireworks when they put out their annual warning that there will be localized poor air quality due to Diwali fireworks. Now, to be clear, I don't have a problem with Diwali fireworks. I'm not a huge fan of pe when people, you know, shoot them sideways at each other in the parking lot at the end of my street in Little India, but I'm usually safely ensconced in my bedroom with my air filter on and my earplugs in by the time that happens most years. I do, however, think it's kind of crazy to claim that it's like somehow discriminatory just to mention the word 
Diwali in a news release about this air quality issue. But I'm not surprised because a lot of people seem to have this belief that, you know, any action that singles out any particular group is automatically discriminatory. You know, in this case, the idea being that it singles out a historically disadvantaged group like um, Indians or Hindus somehow makes this discriminatory. But that's not how it works. Just because like a state action singles out a particular group does not make it discriminatory. In most cases, you also need some element of arbitrariness. So if Environment and Climate Change Canada had put out a warning about Diwali fireworks creating ground level air pollution, but doesn't do that on another holiday that also leads to similar air pollution, that might be discriminatory because there's some arbitrariness involved. But mentioning the mere fact of pollution caused by Diwali fireworks is not discriminatory. It's just good communications. And to be honest, I doubt many, you know, Indians, many Hindus would be particularly offended by that anyway. Um, Joanna, let's hear your bad legal take. Okay, so mine is a tweet from MP Ryan Turnbull, who repeated an article of faith uh, that women have only been considered persons in Canada since 1929 uh, in a decision called Edwards v. Canada um, from the Privy Council. Uh, and this this is just wrong. The decision was not uh, addressing a sort of overall existential question about whether women qualified as persons, but it was interpreting a particular legislative use of persons in Section 24 of the British North America Act. So the JCACP, JCPC was answering a very particular statutory interpretation question about the meaning of DNA Act. Could the women who qualified uh, according to age, residency, landed wealth, count as qualified persons specifically for an appointment to the Senate. Um, and this decision noted that it was clear that in ordinary language that, yes, the word person included women and men. Um, but sometimes in legislation, often in legislation, words have particular meaning and what was intended here. Um, and just briefly, there's another and to my lights, more pernicious myth associated with this so-called person's decision, Edwards v. Canada, which is that this is uh, ground zero for the popular living tree approach to constitutional interpretation, that uh, the Constitution planted a tree which can grow and stretch and sprout new blossoms and basically give judges total cover to do whatever they want. Um, but actually, if you read the decision, it's a very classic textualist, uh, you could even say originalist decision um, that relies strictly on a textualist narrow, uh, narrow approach to conclude that within the meaning of this statute, persons include women. And uh, some of you listening to the podcast may have heard this rant before, but it's just important because the myth just doesn't seem to die, that this is uh, where the living tree approach comes from. Uh, Christine, what's your bad legal take? Oh my gosh, there were so many bad legal takes this week about Section 33 and the notwithstanding clause, which we talked about at the top of the podcast, this Scott Moe's invocation of the notwithstanding clause in response to that injunction in Saskatchewan related to the trans kids policies in school. So here's, here's one from the Ontario Law Association's Federation. They wrote, members of the 
FOLA, which is the Federation of Ontario Law Associations. Members of the FOLA community share many of these concerns. We are deeply concerned by Premier Mo's public attack on the judiciary, which is inappropriate, irresponsible, and disturbing. Now, I'm actually not sure what attack on the judiciary this particular tweet is talking about, unless perhaps Premier Mo said something that I missed, but I don't I don't think so. We went went over in detail all the stuff that happened related to his use of Section 33. I actually think that this account is referring to Mo's statement calling the injunction judicial overreach, uh, but I do not think that calling it judicial overreach is an attack on the judiciary. I think it's a call for the judiciary to return to its proper role. Uh, a further explanation of what the FOLA tweet might have meant is from this, this other tweet. And this tweet says, the language of judicial overreach as la is language that is often used by the U.S. conservative legal movement. And it signals that the right in Canada is prepared to politicize the judiciary to an extent that it is not yet politicized and the left needs to organize with that in mind. And I think that this is one of these classic tinfoil hat arguments. Someone said judicial overreach. The Koch brothers are coming. Like, give give me a break. I mean, I, I can't imagine the reaction they're going to have if they listen to this podcast and hear that Joanna said the term originalism. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> we need to preemptively politicize the judiciary from a left-wing progressive perspective before the evil right wing does it, even though there's no indication that that is happening. Literally, the only thing that they're upset about is that Mo used the term judicial overreach, which is, you know, a longstanding issue in Canadian and basically all legal systems. It's a really important debate in the legal community and the academic community. Literally books are written on this subject. Law journal articles are written about this. The entire debate over the person's case that we talked about and the scope of the living tree is a thing that we have written factums about. We just had a, an argument at the Ontario Superior Court about the scope of what the living tree doctrine means. But I think this is an example of how obsessed the progressive left in Canada is with American politics. They will look for any teeny tiny thread on which they can hang an argument that we are being Americanized. And the fact is the U.S. has nothing like Section 33. It is a unique feature in Canada's constitution. And I say this as a Section 33 skeptic. I'm generally very concerned whenever Section 33 is used. But the reality is it is, as I've said, it is part of our constitution. The claims that Section 33 is used to violate our constitution are absurd because it is a part of the constitution. So I want people to please remember that. And the people who are upset about Scott Moe's use of the term judicial overreach, like that is why section 33 exists. So that is my bad legal take. I'm pretty riled up about it as you guys can hear. Josh, why don't you close us out? As usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, and signing up for the Freedom Update. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. 
If you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas at jdehaas at thecf.ca, Joanna Barron at jbarron at thecf.ca, or Christine at cvangine at thecf.ca. Thanks for listening.